Hi, I'm Conor O'Shea and welcome to this bonus episode of the Eddie Jones Coaching Podcast. With Pitch Up for Rugby taking place at a number of clubs across the country this weekend, we're looking back at the grassroots of the game with two World Cup winners. Now, if you think standing out on the sideline in the cold sort of December morning watching rugby's uh, tough to try a chess tournament for six hours on a Saturday. Did, <laughs> didn't have the biggest heart in the world, but he was a <laughs> He's got the Daily Telegraph newspaper and he said, uh, I suppose you want next week off then. And I says, no. And he says, well, you've been picked for Ireland Day. <laughs> So you better fill out a form. Yes, Australia's Michael Lyon and former All Black John Gallagher join us this week. We head back to the clubhouse. Michael, John, uh, obviously Eddie, not going to be the most controversial interviews you've ever done, but can I just say what an unbelievable privilege it is to have on this like the show, the, the, this podcast, uh, I think two people who need no introduction to, to have two World Cup winners for people tuning in. John Gallagher, New Zealand, uh, All Black, the inaugural World Cup winners and, and Michael Lina, a Hall of Famer, both World Rugby and, and, and Australia. And uh, but, but probably more interesting before we start chatting, um, uh, two guys whose sons have grown up within the English uh, rugby system so it actually you know quite a, a great opportunity not just to talk about some of your experiences and coaches have influenced you two guys and I'm sure some questions from Eddie as well uh, to you but also what your thoughts are watching your kids grow up through the, through the English rugby system so I think I'll just start now maybe because they're, we're, we're talking about grassroots and memories and clubhouses and myself and Eddie have talked quite a lot over the past number of weeks to various different coaches and players and and friends, um, maybe you two starting, John, with you. Some of your earliest memories of uh, of going down to a club for the first time. Maybe you going down yourself. Or are you coming down to to watch your kids play? Yeah, well, I think with the the mini and the junior game, it's taken off so much in the last twenty five years or so since the game went professional. Uh, when I was growing up, Connor, you know, sort of in um, in Lewis from South East London. Um, the first time I ever picked up a rugby ball, I was 11. And that's because I had to, because it was, we went to a school run by Christian Brothers. And it was the only school that, it was the only sport that was allowed. And, um, you know, so my memories of uh, mini junior rugby were virtually non-existent and really didn't happen. I didn't really get to know the grassroots game outside of school until I was about 17 or 18. And, um, and there was always a beer involved. <laughs> You know, you know, and uh, I was playing for about three or four different clubs. You know, um, every every month I was playing for Guys Hospital fourth team. I was playing for London Irish under 19s. I was playing for Old Eskians under 19s, and sometimes the first and second team. Well, I was playing first um, first fifteen rugby on a Saturday morning at school. Um, but I can speak an awful lot about the mini and junior game at Old Coffins and um, and Blackheath Rugby Club in South East London, simply because my my two boys had such a good experience of it. And and Michael, what about you? Uh, obviously, growing up in the the Eddie Jones uh, country of Australia, what's, what what are your memories? Well, I kind of there was um, I, I played rugby at school as opposed to a, a mini sort of junior rugby club. Um, so my experiences early on were um, playing rugby at school. Um, however, before that, at a young age, I went to school on the on the Gold Coast. Um, in Queensland and uh, um, the school played rugby league 
so I played rugby league and soccer, football, um, prior to the family moving up to Brisbane in, oh goodness, 1974, <laughs> that long ago. And I went to a new school in Brisbane um, and in the winter they played rugby union. So that's what I did. Um, but I was a cricketer all through school. That was my main sport. And rugby um, uh, was just something I really did in the winter while waiting for the cricket season to come around. And I wasn't, you know, particularly, I, I played under 13B rugby, under 14B rugby, and then went straight into the first 15. Um, and that's where my sort of interest in rugby sort of developed and evolved into something a little bit more serious. Um, I guess my first uh, um, coming across playing or, or some junior rugby was in Brisbane when I was playing for Queensland, etc. And, and part of that was to go down to help the junior rugby sort of on a Thursday evening or something like that. And I went down to a brother's, brother's rugby club in Brisbane, which was near my house. And uh, um, sort of helping out with the juniors and all that sort of thing. And uh, I remember there was sort of under sevens, under eights, and they're all running around in one big sort of honey, you know, chasing the honey pot around in one big group. And then a plane flew overhead. And I remember the kid was running with the ball and he stopped and sat in the ball and they all stood around looking at this plane. And as this plane, then it kept going. And once it had gone, the kid picked up the ball and started running again. <laughs> you know, they, their concentration was... Uh, was not great, but it was just, they were all out having fun and running around, and that was the main thing. But that was one of my earliest memories of seeing you know, young kids really enjoying themselves, um, themselves running around at a junior rugby club. Eddie, can you remember, <laughs> uh, can you remember your first time into a club when you were a kid? Yeah, no, uh, Clavelli. Uh, I remember their motto was play to win, learn to lose. We had this fantastic coach, red-headed coach, Paul Pemberton. He was taxi driver. He'd always wear long white socks, Bermuda shorts, yeah, always well-dressed and he was a lovely man and we had quite good players because I was, you know, same age group as the Ellers, so we tended to throw the ball around, have a lot of fun and he was just a lovely man. I can still remember his face as, as clear as the day today. Do, do you, Michael, just something you said there about mm. cricket being your number one sport. No, Eddie's massively keen. John, you played every sport under the sun. Um, do do you feel that that a lot of kids try and specialise too early nowadays compared to what they what you did in the past, or do you do you think it's a different era that we live in? What what are all your thoughts on on early specialisation or keeping keeping open to a whole host of sports? Um, my my view is that um, you know we we my wife and I see ourselves uh, when our kids uh, we got three boys when they were growing up, we still are I guess. Um, it was just to introduce them to as many sports as possible and it was up to them to then to decide what they liked and what they enjoyed doing and uh, we saw that as our role to do that, uh, much the same as I guess my parents did, um, you know, encouraged us to, you know, not only sports but other school activities as well, you know, whether that be chess or debating. I've, I've had one of my sons go to a debating, uh, sorry, a chess tournament on a Saturday afternoon. Now, if you sit, think standing out on the sideline in the cold, sort of December morning watching rugby's uh, tough try a chess tournament for six hours on a Saturday. Um, but, you know, that's the sort of thing. I, you just encourage the kids to do stuff. And they, they'll find their feet, you know. If they like rugby, great. If they don't, they can go and play whatever else they want to play, you know. And so that's what we saw. Um, but most our, our three boys gravitated towards rugby. But 
they still played soccer as well and still do. Two of them still do. Um, uh, two of them play cricket. And so, you know, it's quite, quite, um, that's what we saw as our role. And John? Yeah, very similar to Mike's experience with his boys. I've got two boys. So there's Alex. He's living in Melbourne at the moment. He's, uh, he's 28 and Alex and Matthew's moved over to, to Limerick, your neck of the woods, Connor, um, this season. So, um, but yeah, coming through the school they went to, they had a, a term of soccer, a term of rugby and a term of cricket. And all three boys, they were what, uh, both boys throughout their school career. They always played a, a, a decent level of all three sports. Um, but I, I said to them, when it came around to, to Sunday morning, when they had a choice of uh, doing a sport outside what they did at school, they, they, both, um, they both said, look, we want to we wanna play soccer. And this is the age of about seven. So I said, oh, fair enough then. You know, I was a bit gutted, but fair enough. And, um, and then after about a year, you know, they both decided that they wanted to play rugby. So from, from both at the age of eight years old, even though there's five years difference between them, they both started, uh, started concentrating on their rugby. And getting back to your point, Connor, about should they play lots of sports? Well, the answer was, yeah, they were playing lots of sports, you know, and uh, they were swimming as well, you know, um, outside of school timetables. Um, and they, they just had a really good balance of what was what, especially with the invasion games. You know, they both had a you know, good idea of uh, how, how to position themselves spatially in relation to the opposition and, uh, and the players around them. And you just need to be doing it every week just so it inculcates you know, into, the, into the memory. You know? And, um, yeah, so pretty similar to Michael's boys. I might just might add, Connor, if I can, sorry, um, you know, in terms, I didn't really answer your question about specialisation. Um, you know, if, if, if one sport, I, I had a parent that came to me on the sideline at one of my young son's um, football matches. This is quite a long time ago. And he asked me the question, you know, he, his son, who was nine at the time, I think, had been invited by the Tennis uh, Association or British England Tennis to go and specialise do tennis training etc but they asked him if he if he accepts that that they then must not play any other sport particularly football or rugby those contact sports and at the age of nine and I, I just you know said I can't tell you what to do with your son but if it was mine I would say that no I would encourage him to play all sports because if he's any good at tennis you continue continue to do that but as John said you know play those other sports and develop physically. And if you're any good at tennis at 14 and 15, well, then they're still going to want you then. Um, but go and enjoy yourself as a child, you know, and, and have fun playing all these different sports as opposed to just being concentrated on one. Well, I think going, just just going back, and, and Michael, it's more with, with your wife being Italian and my experience over the last number of years of a country that doesn't have sport at school, and then they specialize because the only way after school is you go to a certain club. So they actually don't have that breadth of knowledge at a young age. You specialize as you go up, obviously, but we take for granted a lot of, of, of some of the opportunity, Australia, New Zealand, Ireland, England, that you get to play so many different sports. And it is a good way of broadening. I mean, Eddie, what are your thoughts on that whole area? Uh, uh, it's a difficult one, but, yeah, the the world's moving towards specialisation, isn't it? Mm. Um, the best c- comment I've heard about this is from Wayne Bennett, uh, the Broncos coach and rugby league coach, when he said, 
if I was the Prime Minister of Australia, I'd, I'd, I'd enforce a general balls program up until the age of 12. So do as much ball skill as you can, play as many different games as you can up to the age of 12, and then let the kids decide whether they want to move into something. Like, you know, we've got rugby players now that the only thing they've played is rugby, and that's, it's not healthy. And you see now kids at the age of 13 and 14, their, their whole life is about trying to become a professional rugby player. I don't think that's very healthy in any way. No. And, and as we're on a little bit of a reminisce then and, and talking about our, it, it was always better in our, in our day. When you look at, uh, and, and John and, and, and Michael, your sons are making their way as well. When you look at Matt, you look at Louis, the, like, the, the making their way into that professional world, playing for Munster Saracens or in the Harlequins Academy and, and things like this. Um, do you look with envy or the things that you look from the amateur era that you think, God, I wish they could do what we used to. What are, what are, what are your, some of your great memories of that, of, of your professionalism? Um, I'll, I'll go first, John. Um, I've discussed this with quite a few people, you know, obviously it'd be great to play today and, you know, money would be nice and all that sort of thing. Um, but I honestly, and I feel that I, I had a really good time of it. Um, you know, I first started playing sort of international, sort of first-class rugby for Queensland in 1982 and finished it at Saracens in 96. So it's a pretty good innings. And I was lucky enough to span both the amateur and the professional era towards the end of my career. But, you know, things, fortunate enough to have great memories. And, you know, you look at, say, for example, the 1984 Australian uh, Grand Slam tour that we did over here. And I, I was 20 years of age. And, you know, you're touring around the country uh, for two and a half months with a great bunch of guys. Um, you're playing great rugby. You're winning. Um, I was a university student. So, you know, I'm travelling around the UK and Ireland um, at 20 years of age, staying in lovely hotels, all meal provided, um, and playing a sport with your mates. It was, it was pretty damn good. And, you know, I don't think I'd swap that um, at all. For, to play the sport nowadays. Um, you know, I'm not saying that it's just a different era and it's a different sport now to what it was back then, that's for sure. And Eddie, Eddie would know that. And he, Eddie played with most a lot of the guys and against a lot of the guys in that 84 tour and just a good bunch of blokes, most of them. And it was great fun. And I just sort of, those memories you have from them and that, those sort of periods, um, but I, as I said, I was very lucky to, towards the end of my career to be able to sort of um, play the professional game. And really, compared to now, it was, it was still pretty amateur, really, compared to what it is now. Um, but I, I like the fact that actually I was able to go and do other things. I was able to go to uni. I was able to work. Um, and once I finished playing rugby, then that stood me in good stead going forward. Um, I had different interests other than just rugby and, you know, um, what... Uh, what to eat and how to train, et cetera. I had a lot of other things going on as well, which I, I think is healthy to use Eddie's term. Mm. John, anything from you? Yeah, I mean, it's just uh, Mike touched on it. It was all about trying to get the balance right, really. Well, you know Connor as well, it? especially Eddie as well, you know, trying to hold down a full, full-time job and um, you know, still time, and also trying to excel at your chosen sport. I was, uh, I was 20 when I went to have a six-month six break in New Zealand and ended up staying there for six and a half years. 
And uh, so I, I needed to get a job. So I got a job in the police force um, because I knew they'd be supportive of uh, rugby players, especially in Wellington, New Zealand. And, um, but, you know, it's just a question of, I was watching Matt play at Saracens a couple of years ago and one of the mums, um, she was sitting in front of me, she said, oh, John, what was, um, what was it like when you were playing? I said, well, I remember, you know, doing a night shift at Wellington and should have been knocking off at seven o'clock in the, the following morning because I had a game in the afternoon for Wellington, possibly against Queensland. You know, it was, um, you know, they'd say, well, John, you can go home at half three. You know, so I get home at half three in the morning, and then you then you sleep and meet up with your team at eleven at the hotel, and then and then you go down to Athletic Park and play. Um, the whole time it was sort of um, entrenched in you that you this was an amateur sport, and you had to find uh, find a way, you know, to support yourself. And uh, so I think even though I, I enjoyed um, the benefits of playing professional rugby league, unfortunately I had to leave rugby union for it and go to go to rugby league. Um, it, it, it was. It was still, you know. It was um, playing the rugby union the whole time. You know, you had to be self-sufficient, and you couldn't really rely on anybody. Mm. Eddie, we're just looking at thinking of memories, and uh, have have you any specific? Well, go coaching memories now, as opposed to the the playing the playing days. Early coaching memories that are just special that kind of you look back on that not a win just a, a dressing room a pub a bar a, a trip something that just always sticks in your head as, as those special memories I was just thinking uh, about watching being in the lounge and watching these two blokes play uh, in Bledisloe Cups and wishing I was there but I wasn't quite good enough <laughs> uh, I can remember playing against Noddy I think we there's a Pacific uh, where they had the old Pacific Championship which was the start of the Super Rugby, and we were New South Wales. It perennially had been no good. And for for one year, we got it all together. Always had good players. We won the first four games, and we played the fifth game at Ballymore against Queensland. And uh, it was pouring down with rain. In those days, the fields would be absolute mud. I can remember Noddy just putting up these high balls and David Knox, who was my round of teammate, he did, <laughs> didn't have the biggest heart in the world, but he was a brilliant <laughs> And he could hear all the Queensland players saying, Herbie, smash him, Herbie, smash him. And of course, Herbie had smashed the ball, bounced up. I think we got beaten by 38 points. Um, so we'd gone from being in the pole position to win it to, to getting knocked out in the last game. And, and you know... It was it was fantastic playing in those days at, at that level, but the 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 diligence of the players now is incredible, absolutely incredible. The the diligence is incredible. Just I want to ask a couple of questions. There's a couple of things on a quiz question, but Michael, you said earlier on about starting mm. cricket was your your sport and you played rugby league, yet you became one of the great goal kickers of all time. So when, and Eddie talks about diligence, how did you self-teach? How um, much did you practice? You know, like, get, get us a mindset into a goal kicker of your level. Okay, but before, before I started playing rugby league, um, I played for a um, club soccer team in, in, on the Gold Coast. The Musgrave Park Rockets, they were called. And uh, a f- friend of mine in, the, in, in class at school's father was from England and... He was the local Musgrave Park um, um, 
soccer coach, football coach. And so we went along and he's, we went along and we used to play, I think it must have been under sixes, under seven, something like that, and played soccer. And that's where I, it was just a natural thing to kick a soccer ball around the corner as we, and nobody in those days is, you know, a lot of you probably remember that, that, that in Australia in particular, nobody kicked the round, round the corner style. It was all toe poking front on. And then I, we, as I said, we went up to Brisbane and I started playing rugby union. And up until about, I think it's about up to age about 12 or 13, you still drop kick for goal. So I used to drop kick for goal um, just because I could kick the ball, um, probably from that soccer background. Um, where it developed a little bit. And then um, at training, most kids, you, you know, we'd all, before training started, you'd put the ball down and pretend to be, you know, Paul McLean or Roger Gould or something like that in Queensland, two Queensland players. And they both toe-poked the ball, um, like we used to call it. And and I put, and so we're all the kids are doing that. And I put the ball down, I put it up and kicked around the corner. And they're all sort of laughing and, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing? But having watched the, five nations over here um that's what everybody did and maybe it's something to do with the football background the weather and the conditions they kick in etc but that was always the way i kicked from you know from that six years of age from soccer and in terms of actual practicing and all that sort of thing um i was very natural at it but i used to take it on myself i remember before going on the australian schoolboys tour over here to uk and ireland in 1981, 82, that period. Um, I said to, I thought to myself, well, it's going to be wet and pretty heavy over there in, in the UK at that time of the year. So I remember going down to the local park on my own when it rained and practice kicking in the rain on my own. Um, and I had to, you know, had to sort of do it, everything like that. And I saw it was sort of you know, self-driven, I guess, driven to actually do things like that. But I never practiced as much as what I should have. And that was due to the circumstances. I mean, I'd go to work in the morning in the city and then in, in Brisbane and then leave work at 5.30 to be at training at Ballymore at 6, um, then sort of train until 9 and then go home and do, it, do the same thing the next day. And so there wasn't a huge amount of time to actually practice goal kicking. I used to do a little bit here and there and then come Saturday when you play, it was a bit like trying to tee off on the first tee. You don't know where that drive's going to go. But if it goes down the middle, you're feeling pretty good about yourself. So my goal kicking was a bit like that. Then when I came to Saracens, um, professionally, I realised that a big difference was a lot of the guys got paid on win bonuses and I had a big say in that. So my pra I practised a huge amount and lo and behold, um, I became better at it. So, you know, practice is the key. But well, were... natural was a good, great, to have a good feel and find out what works for you, for you was the key. You were you were bloody irritating when you weren't practicing much either because I remember you kicking the goal when it, it, after the Hooter when you, you beat us Queensland beat Ireland in in Ballymore all those years ago and you, you kicked a goal on the Hooter and uh, you kicked many a goal so I'd be I'm glad you didn't yeah. practice much. <laughs> um, I remember that goal. <laughs> oh god, so do I because I actually goal kicked all right for once in my life in a game. <laughs> you still beat us, but um, just. Uh, Eddie, you're good on your knowledge, general knowledge of rugby, would you say? Good brain on rugby? Uh, average, mate, average. Average. <laughs> I, I, I want you to guess, true or false, it's probably a bit leading, did 
the, the greatest moment in John Gallagher's rugby career was actually not winning the World Cup in 87. It was playing, true or false, for Ireland A with me against South Africa A. <laughs> uh, definitely true, mate. Definitely true. <laughs> so, John, talk us through that great moment in your rugby career. Oh. <laughs> well, well, you what, it's, um, it's, it's Christmas, just before Christmas 95, and I get a phone call from a great mate of mine, uh, about six years older than me at school, a guy called Tommy Hennessy, who was, uh, did a bit of propping for Munster as well. And uh, Tommy was in charge of the, the Irish exiles based out of London Irish in Sunbury. And he gave me a call. I'd just finished rugby league. and I'd re- I retired. I'd gone into teaching. And he gave me a call and he said, uh, he said you know, the, the English game's gone professional, John, and they've got this year meritor- moratorium. So, you, you know, you can't play but you can play in Wales, you can play in New Zealand, you can play in Ireland, you know, but you just can't play in England. And uh, he said, how about you come and sit on the bench for me? We've got a game against Ulster up in Sale, you know, for the Irish exiles. Come and sit on the bench and see what happens, you know, just to wind people up. I said, great, okay, let's do that. So I sat on the bench and then the following week I, I found myself playing. And uh, so the thing sort of snowballed. And uh, so I then got invited, and you were there, Connor. Uh, we got invited to a training weekend in Dublin before Christmas, and they were going to pick a 28-man squad to go to America for, um, for a pre-season uh, Five Nations. You must, did you go on that, America? I did. We, we were the first. We went warm weather training and got snowed in. <laughs> Only, only, an Irish, only an Irish team could manage that. Yeah. So, so anyway, the thing was, so I trained all weekend, got good feedback. Um, they named the team, they named the squad to go for pre-season for the Five Nations, and uh, I'm not in it. You know, so I thought, fair enough. It was, it was always a bit of a long shot anyway. So I enjoyed Christmas. And then um, it's around about the first week in January, and I'm walking through the, the school gates and I've got the, my boss, the headmaster, he's waiting for me. And he's got, a, he's got the Daily Telegraph newspaper. And he said, uh, I suppose you want next week off then? And I says, no. And he says, well, you've been picked for Ireland Day. <laughs> so you better fill out a form. So that was the way it worked. So I ended up playing. I had a great experience of playing. Unfortunately, I, I was playing in the centre. Connor, one of London Irish's greatest fullbacks, was on the wing, I seem to recall, that day. Speed, speed. That's what they yeah, wanted. Yeah, we had, we had Davey Humphreys at fly half. We had uh, Alan Roland was our captain, the famous referee. He was, he was scrum half. We had Axel, Axel Foley, number eight. We had Paul Wallace in the front row. Do you remember any more? We had an absolutely brilliant night. I'll tell you what. <laughs> and, and we, by the way, we did win with the distributing centre. I managed two tries in that game. Yeah. Amazingly. Amazingly. It was a good having a distributing centre. Only, only, only some ever passed it. So I have to, you, you talk about memories, Michael and Eddie. Yeah. We rocked up. And I remember watching John Gallagher in the, you know, the 87 World Cup and cutting these lines, swaded through. And you rock up and suddenly... 
you're playing alongside them. And I'd gone to the, you know, the, the 91 World Cup in Ireland where, you know, I know that wouldn't have been the, the greatest, the, the greatest, but the, the 87 World Cup is just etched in your memory. And then suddenly you're just, oh my God, this bloke is actually playing alongside me. This is incredible. And whether those things will ever happen again, John, I doubt, I doubt they ever will. Um, three people who've won, you know, Eddie, you've, were with South Africa when they won the World Cup and obviously you've been to World Cup finals as well with England and Australia. The two of you guys have won World Cups. You can't be on this without giving us a memory, a special memory for those World Cup wins. Michael, do you want to start? Yeah, I mean, I was lucky enough to play in the first three and uh, 87 was very disappointing for us, you know, losing against France in the, in the semi. 95, I don't think we were... We, we weren't good enough, so you sort of, uh, um, you know, we got beaten by South Africa in the opening game and then lost to England in the quarterfinal. But you, know, you sort of, it was very disappointing at the time, but I look at it now and say, yeah, no, we weren't good enough and South Africa beat us and beat us quite quite well. Um, but 91, when we won it, I, I guess, you know, all the games and all that sort of thing, but we were very lucky throughout the tournament in terms of we didn't have many injuries to deal with. Uh, it was a good squad. It was, you know, a good mixture of mature sort of people in important positions and some youngsters, you know, Horn and Whistle, those sort of guys who, you know, did do all the running for you, like excited young puppies and stuff. Like that. But um, I guess there's two memories, and it was both after the after the game. I remember going from um, Twickenham into the reception, which was at the Royal Lancaster Hotel, just in um, Hyde Park there, and I. Sitting on the bus, I was sitting next to Bob DeWire and uh, Eddie's great friend and uh, the World Cup winning coach that year. And we had the, I had the trophy sitting on my lap and I'm sitting there with Bob and, you know, nobody else wanted it. So I put it on my lap and I just thought, this is pretty cool. And then we got to the dinner and it was one, about a thousand people at this thing, all male, by the way, black tie thing. And um, I was sitting there and actually a few other people players from other teams, etc. And it's the end of the meal and we're just sitting down to have a you know, glass of port and a few cigars, etc. And, you know, the formal speeches were about to happen. And I remember Nick Farr-Jones, our, our Australian captain, um, who was to, due to give a speech, basically came up and tapped me on the shoulder and said, mate, I'm, I'm sick. I'm going home. You're going to have to do the speech. And I went, what? You're joking. And he, no, he said, I'm, got, I'm off now. I'm, I'm, I'm crook. I'm going home. And just then, you know, the MC tapped the glass and said, right, okay, the speech has started and I had to follow. I think the keynote was uh, uh, Tony O'Reilly, the, the Irish businessman and ex-British lion, and he's a brilliant speaker in the day. And, uh, and then now we're going to hear from a World Cup winning uh, captain who unfortunately is in, uh, sick, but his deputy's going to uh, deputise for him. And I, I didn't know what to say, but then I thought, well, the best thing I should do is everybody in this room would give their right leg to be in my shoes. And that's basically what I said um, to be up here tonight, accepting this and speaking on behalf of the team. So um, I don't know what I said after that, but I think I got through it. But that, that, they were sort of special. The dinner afterwards and traveling with Bob on the bus with the rest of the team, but having that trophy sit on the lap while, you, while you're going to a reception, it was, it was pretty nice. And being the most hated man in Ireland for scoring the try after Gordon Hamilton's try, but you'd forgotten about that one. No, no, I didn't want to mention it. Every time I speak to an Irishman, they mention it. The number of people that said that they were at that game in that corner, um, 
is uh, is amazing. And I still get caught going into uh, Dublin when we were allowed to back in the day when we were allowed to travel to Dublin. <laughs> um, pulled up at uh, at customs and told that you won't be coming into Ireland today because of what you did in '91. Still bloody happens right. to this day. Uh, bloody rightly so too. <laughs> Myself and Eddie have talked a lot about these sliding door moments in everyone's career, playing, coaching, minutes to change matches or minutes to change your your, your lives. Like and that, there's a, a minute or two either side that in '91 a great Australian side could have been out, ended up yep. winning the World Cup. Uh, that's life, uh, John. From you in '87, any standouts? Yeah, I think really it was um, it was the build up you know, to 87, because the I didn't make the All Blacks until the autumn of 86. And I really got in because um, a number of players had retired after the uh, the Springbok or the Yellow Pages tour, the Rebel tour to South Africa in 86. And um, the game and the country was in real turmoil. I just happened to, you know, have a, have a really, really red hot streak um, in the games leading up to naming the team to go to, on tour to France at the end of 86. And I was playing for the Wellington side. We won the, we'd won the championship 10 out of 10. And, um, you know, against, uh, on the backdrop of great wins against Auckland and, uh, and Canterbury, who had the majority of the All Blacks. And um, so I found myself sitting on the plane, you know, as a 22-year-old, not quite believing my luck because I'd only been in the country three years at that stage. And, um, and then, so it was just, you know, for me, you know, and I had, a, I, I was on the bench for the two test matches, played four games, at two at centre, two at fullback. And, uh, and then coming into it, everything's, you know, all of a sudden the World Cup's on. And, it, you know, I just couldn't even sort of comprehend it. Um, and then I found myself playing in the trial games and, uh, and then being called out as, you know, one of the 26 players. Um, and then you're thinking, right, okay, well, this is, this is fantastic. And then um, first game up against Italy, I think it was 20, 20th of May or 22nd of May, 1987. You were at Eden Park, you know, in, in front of about 16,000 people because it's a Friday afternoon. And there was such a downer on the All Blacks because of the previous year with the Springbok uh, uh, debacle that um, the New Zealand public weren't really that interested but I remember, um, I remember John Kerwin's fantastic try, and I was just on his shoulder. <laughs> and as soon as he got to the halfway line, I just thought I'd let him go. And um, that really energised, because obviously it was shown all around the world, especially in New Zealand. Then after that, all the games were a sellout. So, you know, um, for me, for the 87 World Cup, you know, and, and also as well, you know, we had, uh, we, we had you know, the, the third choice captain, because I think they were looking at Jock Hobbs, and Jock uh, got concussed, and then... Andy Dalton was um, was going to be the captain, and then he pulled up a pulled pulled up with a hamstring injury in the in the um, one of the practice sessions before the World Cup started, and then Fitzy's Sean Fitzpatrick's form was so so good that they couldn't bring Andy Dalton back, and um, you know, but for me, I think that the, the the moment that changed everything for for New Zealand, not only the the players on the field, but the, the way the country acted and that that as we all know has a huge impact if you've got the if support of the home nation right behind you when JK scored that try you know so for me you know it was yes it was wonderful winning the World Cup and it's you know it's a memory that nobody can ever take away from you you know but um, 
you know, I think in, you know, just thinking back now, JK's try really set the ball rolling, got the momentum going. Um, uh, mm. Last question, and guys, thank you so much. I just got to Eddie, three World Cup finals, uh, as, from a coaching perspective, been involved, you know, as you know, uh, South Africa, England, Australia, lose two, win, or lose two, win one. What are the comp- contrasting emotions or can you even picture yourself what what do you think about after the biggest game of all uh, can you can do you, do you ever sit back and go god i never want to feel like this again or can you bottle the moment and keep it with you when you've got the win have you any specific memories uh well i remember in 2003 we we hadn't had great form going into the tournament and we battled our way through, had a good win in the semi-final, and, and basically no one thought we could win. And I remember we played up until the 100th minute against England and gave it everything we got. Um, and you're disappointed, you gutted. Um, and like last year, same thing. You, you know, you feel like your world's going to end, but you know, you get up the next day and the sun's still shining and the dog still wags its tail, so... You just get on with it. 2007 was fun. I was in the head coach, so it was just about enjoy, you know, coaching and enjoying rugby. But I remember the 87 semi-final at Concord Oval. Um, I played for Randwick against Eastern Suburbs. We were the curtain raiser. This is how far the World Cup's gone. There's about 10,000 people there. I remember with you know, a few of the Randwick blows, we were having a pie and a beer and watching Serge Blanco score in the corner. Remember he scored in the corner of the semi-final? What a try, we like, yeah. We were literally six metres away from him on the on an old wire fence. And you consider what it is now. It shows you how mm. much has changed in rugby. And, yeah, although the game was great back then, what it has evolved to now is uh, unbelievable. Yeah. Well, Eddie, that's a brilliant way to finish. Uh, uh, to John, Michael, thank you so much for joining. I think... I remember growing up through the game and going, uh, I never want to be the the, the, the old Alakadu. Thinking back in my year was great. We had a brilliant time. I think it's brilliant watching where the game has come to from when we started. Uh, you know, Ireland A, South Africa A, New Zealand winning World Cups um, uh, to where it is now. And I'm sure 20, 30 years time it will be completely different as well. But thanks for sharing some of those memories. It's been lovely, lovely talking and, and hopefully people will enjoy listening in. Thanks very much to Michael Lyon and John Gallagher for joining us on the podcast and talking through some of their favourite rugby memories. Even if I got one of my memories slightly wrong and it was Scotland Day, not South Africa Day that I played with John, don't forget our regular pods are out every Tuesday and this coming week is one of our favourites as me and Eddie spoke to Australia's cricket head coach Justin Langer. Hopefully we'll see you then. Bye for now.